Bankless Nation, happy Friday. We got an unscripted conversation coming at you live. Me and Mike Ippolito are just gonna go at it. Uh, whenever we talk a bunch in real life, uh, it's always super, I always learn a ton from Mike Ippolito. And so I'm going to do that again today, but this time live on the stream. So we're gonna get into that conversation, but first a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Kraken knows crypto. Kraken's been in the crypto game for over a decade, and as one of the largest and most trusted exchanges in the industry, Kraken is on the journey with all of us to see what crypto can be. Human history is a story of progress. It's part of us, hardwired. We're designed to seek change everywhere, to improve, to strive. And if anything can be improved, why not finance? Crypto is a financial system designed with the modern world in mind. Instant, permissionless, and 24-7. It's not perfect, and nothing ever will be perfect. But crypto is a world-changing technology at a time when the world needs it the most. That's the Kraken mission, to accelerate the global adoption of cryptocurrency so that you and the rest of the world can achieve financial freedom and inclusion. Head on over to kraken.com bankless to see what crypto can be. Not investment advice, crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc., PVI, doing business as Kraken. It's everyone's favorite season in crypto, tax season. And crypto tax is always an absolute headache, especially for all you DGENs out there. But it doesn't have to be a nightmare. That's where Crypto Tax Calculator comes in. The software built for DGENs by DGENs. As Coinbase's official global tax partner, Crypto Tax Calculator focuses on making complex transactions into easy ones, supporting over 300,000 currencies across Ethereum, Arbitrum, Optimism, as well as a thousand other integrations as well. It's as simple as connecting your wallet, pulling in all your transactions, and following the automated suggestions to quickly and accurately calculate your tax obligations. Plus, for all the airdrop farmers out there, Crypto Tax Calculator has your back as they are consistently adding support for new and upcoming Layer 1s, Layer 2s, and all the airdrops that you're currently farming. 2024 is the year when the DGENs do their crypto taxes with speed and confidence. Make taxes this year easy and affordable with Crypto Tax Calculator. Sign up at CryptoTaxCalculator.io and get a 30% discount with code BANK30. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Are you launching a token? Is it already live? How are you managing the legal and tax obligations for providing token grants to your team? It's no secret that token management gets complicated. Between learning all the legal language and tax obligations in every country that your team is in, token grant management can feel like an obstacle course, but it doesn't have to. That's where Toku steps in. Toku provides practical tools to handle token grants, allowing for effective oversight of token distributions and payroll tax compliance for employees, contractors, advisors, and investors. They also handle tax withholding through their real-time tax calculations that can be done by Toku or integrated into any payroll EOR providers in any jurisdiction. Toku is a trusted provider of Protocol Labs, DYDX Foundation, Mina Protocol, and many more. Get started for free and make token compensation simple at toku.com slash bank. How's it going, Mike? How are you doing? Doing very well, man. Doing very well. No complaints. Almost Good to see you. Week. What about you? Yeah, we never yeah, happy, talk. We never, happy, talk. we never ever talk. Like, what's up with that? <laughs> the joke is, we actually we talk quite often, but we never get to talk. I think open ended. Uh, That's very true. We, when we do, it's usually in a, a, some sort of like crowded, loud environment, and not as productive as it could be. So I hope That's that uh, I hope we can kind of change the game a little bit with uh, what we talked about today. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, what do you, where do you want to start first? I mean, it's been it's been an interesting week. Um, it's been it's an interesting of, week. It's been an interesting quarter. Uh, I think yeah. things are crescendoing in their interest. Maybe maybe we could start um, uh, just as like a where we left off when we had you on the podcast like half a year ago now, uh, yeah. and you had I think one of the most banger podcasts that we had in a while. Really, just talking about oh, um, 
the Solana thesis, the um, Ethereum thesis, the Cosmos thesis, and how they're all kind of like representative of different points to enter into a becoming a blockchain and how you were saying like everything is kind of converging. Uh, that was like yeah. banger episode. Everyone lo- loved it. Uh, and I'm just wondering, like, uh, that was six months ago. Um, there's a lot of stuff that has happened since then. Um, uh, maybe that can just present that to you and see where you want to go with it. Yeah, I think um, I think since then we've started to see even more even more convergence. And one of the you know there's actually a great you know this is basically anything that Vitalik writes is gold, right? Mm-hmm. But he's got this great, very nicely summed up. Uh, very nicely summed up diagram, which is uh, the the basically three different ways that blockchains are evolving. Uh, and the common component of that is centralized block production, uh, but decentralized uh, proofs and verification. And there are three different ways that that's playing out across a whole bunch of different ecosystems right now. So like, let's take two of these examples, which would be Ethereum, where there's uh, Ethereum um, and there are centralized builders and a couple of different rollups. Or there are maybe, let's call it one large rollup uh, where there's one uh, centralized sequencer that's doing a lot of the block construction up there. Or there's uh, many different rollups, which is sort of what we're seeing now. But MEV is ultimately what ends up, uh, ends up re-centralizing that block production because you have uh, MEV that gets extracted. It's a very expensive proposition to build blocks across all of these different fragmented rollups. That requires a big centralized builder to stand in the way. And then on the Solana side of things, like this would be sort of the high TPS chain, which is the third leg of that stool. You've got obviously higher bandwidth and hardware requirements for validators. Uh, but you actually saw, this was pretty cool from Sovereign Labs, you saw the very beginnings of a of a light client over there, an SPV type light client. And we know we're going to get Tiny Dancer on the Solana side of things. So I think that Vitalik, uh, as per usual, said it much better than, than I ever could in a million years. But additionally, like we just saw uh, Polygon release something pretty cool this week called the Ag Layer, which is this, mm-hmm. we, we've been talking a little bit about aggregated ZK proofs, which do something very similar. Celestia, which I, I, to be honest, at the time, I didn't really get too deep on the design is also very similar, kind of big blocks, a few chunky validators, but they've got these light nodes, which verify and have special powers within the chain. So I think if anything, it's, it's pretty live and well. So I think like uh, the, before Bankless, I did this podcast with my old buddy, uh, Christian Corollas, who then went on to work at uh, Bitcoin Media. And my my arc in that role was like the everything guy, so I'm I, I'm all the chains, the multi layer ones, the the cosmos, mm. the interoperability, uh, the bridges, uh, and then he was Bitcoin. He was the Bitcoiner, and then slowly over time, I kind of morphed my thinking, my like my like uh, just like ideas for how the space would converge, and then I converged into the Ethereum uh, camp, mm. and then it became like a Bitcoin versus Ethereum podcast, and now I'm kind of like going back a little bit the other way where just like you're seeing the writing on the wall like Solana's not going away there's so there's always so much excitement on like newer chains no matter what era you're in like right now Celestia is super hyped and actually getting real real adoption uh, Monad isn't even live yet and people love it already uh, there's always going to be the move towards uh, just like newer chains I think people are always going to enjoy new chains and so like I'm kind of like waving the flag on just like one central chain that will like gobble up everything. Even though I do think that like there are forces that push towards that direction and there always will be, but there's also like push forces that push away from that direction. And there likely always will be because we've definitely seen that over the last like, you know, eight years in crypto. So David, what do you think, if you had to outline, what do you think the forces that push us towards that direction of one chain to rule them all? And what are the Mm -hmm. forces that disperse us from that? 
concentrated. Well, I think the very, very simple one is like the, the bigger that the, the top dog chain is, like the one chain to rule them all, the bigger that that one is, the stronger of an incentive there is to fork off from that chain and try and uh, build a new one, a better, like yep. a better Bitcoin, build a better Bitcoin, like an Ethereum killer. So like there's like this natural equilibrium that is set in between like, it doesn't matter how successful you are, the larger, the more successful you become, the stronger the incentive it is to be to dethrone you. Uh, and then you get into like the VCs playing like the alt layer one games, which, you know, retail also loves Retail loves that game too. Uh, and yeah. so like there is, I don't know if there's ever, and then also like there, there was that meme that John Charbonneau tweeted out that I think you retweeted maybe. And it was like generalized chain wants to become more specific, more specific or app app wants uh, more sovereignty. So it becomes an app chain on a generalized chain. And then yeah. app wants more features, becomes more generalized. A new app comes and uh, is born on that slightly more generalized chain. And then now that app wants more sovereignty. So it makes an app chain and there's like a cycle. There's always just like, you can't have too much of anything because there will always be some sort of opposing force to check on that. Uh, and so that's kind of what I'm seeing. Like I'm just ready for like the new crop of layer one. So like gain of attention, attention in this bull market and the cycle repeats. I'm, I'm with you. Another way of saying that VCs and retail love new layer ones is entrepreneurs love it too. That is, I think, the yeah. single driving force, which is just that mm. entrepreneur sees inevitably with these, you know, with uh, blockchain architectures, you have to make trade-offs. And there's always like one smart person who's like, I don't really like that you made this trade-off. I actually think there's a market for someone who made the opposite side of this trade-off and then they go do that. So every experiment ultimately ends up getting run. And again, I think that's I think that's a positive thing. But that's a that's a funny meme because I think also, one thing that might be changing at least my worldview about how I used to think about things, I used to think about the world very black and white between general block space versus app specific. So like general is like Ethereum, right? Like you can do yep. anything you want. It's the world computer. And then Osmosis is an example of an app specific chain. It just wants to be a DEX. That's what its block space is optimized for. But it's kind of converging in both directions. And even the general blockchains like Ethereum's roadmap now looks like the main chain is a bulletin proof or a bulletin board for posting ZK proofs and it's exporting money. And it's like, right. well, Bitcoin kind of started general, but now it's the app chain for money. Ethereum right. looks like it's heading in that direction. So Ethereum is specializing, but then some of those DEX is like Osmosis is like, hey, yeah, we've got a DEX, but you should come build a DEX on our DEX, you know, and say <laughs> like, yeah, we're actually, you know, we're building, you know, sector specific block space. So all of our validators have to run their own order matching engines. Like, you know, we're kind of converging on it probably both sides that, you know, once you have an app that reaches some amount of product market fit, you want to expand. But the big, really general ones are like, actually, the world is just too big. We need to specify. So we're kind of converging there as well, I'd say. Are you, are you saying that there's no such thing as actually truly general block space? I think, yeah. I think I'm landing on that. I don't think, I think it might be a myth similar to bridging. Okay, probably. so, but Ethereum at block, at the Genesis block, in 2015 and then before it became had any sort of like actual real uh applications on it that was general block yeah. space right yeah 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 unmorphed and then it had to specialize uh, at some point and then had to specialize yeah but is yeah. ethereum specializing now i guess now it, it will still be pretty general um until Dankun, and that is the first instance of ethereum specializing with um blob space right like it's still pretty general up until that point it's just like the apps have started to force it into being more dedicated towards specific reasons, but not totally. not anything inherently at the base protocol. I think ultimately every 
even like Solana, which is the, you know, it's the light speed, it's the world, uh, it's uh, consensus at the speed of NASDAQ, global, all that stuff. Yeah. It's probably going to have to end up specializing. I'm not technical enough to be like at this level of throughput, this many right. transactions, this globally distributed is when you would have to start specializing. But I sort of do trust the modular camp that eventually not the entire internet can sit on one layer with one set of validators. Ultimately, you're going to need to start specializing. So I think it's coming for Ethereum and Solana and not in a bad way. It's just, hey, right. we have product market fit on these certain things. We should double down on this and really expand. Yeah, well, I think we just did this um, super long podcast with Mike Neuter uh, and Domothy, two hours, 45 minutes around the Ethereum roadmap. Uh, and that's kind of like when, like, once again, uh, it was impressed upon me that the long-term conclusion of Ethereum is this like super lightweight layer one blockchain that just receives and verifies proofs of what could be anything at higher levels. Um, and then, and that's also what the Bitcoiners want Bitcoin to be. Like that yeah. is, if you're a Bitcoin builder, if you're a Bitcoin Renaissance, not a Bitcoin maxi, then like you're really interested in Bitcoin being like the truth layer for any sort of expressive alternative layers. They've just never been able to figure out how to get Bitcoin to become that. But that is what Bitcoin wants to be, according to them. Um, and the thing is, like, if Bitcoin achieves that, like, there's a lot of focus on the BitVM right now. Uh, if Bitcoin achieves that, then, like, it's actually achieved that faster than Ethereum did and without all of the, like, technical debt that Ethereum has, which is just kind of funny. <laughs> it, it would be hysterical if they wound up doing basically the same thing. But yeah. I also think here's a challenge, for, or here's just something I've been trying to think through when it comes to Bitcoin, and you let me know. Uh -huh. uh, so the great thing about Ethereum from a monetary standpoint is it's this very large, very liquid asset, and people historically want to do things with that asset. It has this culture of like, okay, I have my Ethereum, then I buy an mm -hmm. NFT, or I deposit right. into this DeFi protocol, or I'm going to restake it and loop up. Probably not financial advice. Maybe don't do that so much. But <laughs> still, there's this culture of like, once you have this crypto native capital, Ethereans tend to want to unlock that capital. Whereas mm -hmm. that's much less proven out in the world of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is right. the largest, Bitcoin is the largest form or pool of crypto native capital. But, and there, there was early product market fit through BlockFi. Like you saw Bitcoiners mm -hmm. wanted to earn yield on their Bitcoin. There is a culture there of not wanting to do things. Like the culture yes. in Bitcoin is like, I bury this shit deep in cold storage you know right it's like arctic tundra cold storage so i how much of that unlocks into these new cool use cases on drive chains that i, I have no idea i have no idea and that's the big question <laughs> okay yeah I, I think i have some sort of like not and not answer but just like i think why there is that culture in bitcoin is because they haven't been given the tools to express themselves and their desire for more productive uh asset in bitcoin and so like all of the people who are like, I'm going to you know, dig a five foot hole inside my backyard and bury my Bitcoins in it and not touch it. Those people have all of the tools to like broadcast their culture and their preferences because Bitcoin hasn't been expressive. But now we actually have um, like ordinals as a tool for Bitcoiners to be like, no, I want to like play with my Bitcoin. Um, yeah. And there's actually been a bunch of deals that we're like looking at at the Bankless Ventures. Uh, do you actually know that, you know, you know, who's the largest custodian of Bitcoin? Like who's got all the Bitcoin? Binance. Because like people just tr trust Binance with their Bitcoin, Binance custody. Yeah. Uh, and so like there are deals like who are working inside of this realm of just like, actually, there's a lot of Bitcoiners who have given up uh, their private keys because that's what that's whatever. And so they're trying to build like utility around that whole part of the world. And so I think once Bitcoiners have like the tools to be DGENs, then they will become DGENs. I think so too. So one of my, we going into this year prediction episode, one of my highest convictions bets was actually 
Bitcoin JPEGs for exactly this reason. So mm. I, I've been cheering on just because, you know, when CeFi blew up, it it eliminated the the tools for Bitcoiners to do anything with their Bitcoin, right? right. Uh, but I think basically BlockFi and Celsius was proof positive that people do, Bitcoiners do actually want to earn yield on their Bitcoin, do fun right. things. I just don't know enough about the limitations of building on Bitcoin to know if, like for instance, like Bitcoin still, those blocks are tiny and yeah. there are 10 minute block times, not right. 12 seconds. Like the 12 second block times are tough enough in Ethereum. Like I just don't have a good enough sense about what the actual technical limitations are of that. Right. Um, but JPEGs are just so easy. It's like, right. yeah, I want to buy this monkey JPEG. <laughs> this looks cool. Um, so. it, it is kind of funny how fast JPEG culture got incepted into Bitcoin. I feel like they have uh, a bigger JPEG culture than Ethereum does these days. They do. And and low-key, Magic Eden, uh, you know, they pivoted away from Solana, but they basically own, they have super dominant market share there. Like if you right. want to trade a Bitcoin JPEG, you basically go to Magic Eden. So props to them for doing that. What do you think, David, about, there have been a lot of hot takes on the death of the 10,000 PFP collection. What do you think uh-huh. about that? The death of the 10,000 PFP collection. Well, what, what was the last 10,000 PFP collection to really come out? Well, I guess you had like Mad Lads. I don't know if it was actually ten thousand, but that was somewhere. Mad Lads was uh, yeah, it counts right. Mad Lads was yeah. like a year ago. Yeah, yeah. There's like there's like the Brian Armstrong one on base, but that's it never really ex- exploded beyond base, right? <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I wouldn't count that. I mean, in Solana, there have been a couple. There have been Tensorians. I would put in there as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, there is a on Bitcoin. I don't know how many there there are, but there's Node Monkeys and there's mm-hmm. there's also uh, there's the Bitcoin Wizards, quantum. right? And, and then Quantum, both, cats quantum and, Cast was like the new one, which minted at 0.1 Bitcoins and are got up to like I don't I haven't checked the price in the last like week or so, but like the last I checked it was like 0.27 Bitcoins. That's what Node Monkeys was trading at. I was like, I just can't make myself do that. <laughs> yeah, that's too high. Too high. That's too high. <laughs> that's too high. Yeah. So, but what do you think about that as a concept? Because you know, the if you were against that concept, you'd say this was ridiculous. These JPEGs aren't worth very much, and there's no reason they ever should have traded at that valuation. But I think there's maybe another case there too. I mean, in a digital world, I've always thought like the PFP like utility on your profile has has immense utility. Like me too. To it to the point where I'm like meeting people at a conference. And I'm like trying to like get a grip, like a grasp on who they are, and then they show me their Twitter, and I recognize immediately their PFP. Uh, mm-hmm. And that hasn't seemed to be like taken up lately. I think people care a lot less about that now, and people are just ignoring that aspect. But um, that was like the big thing last cycle, and I don't know why that would like go away. It didn't doesn't seem like a flash in the pan. They've got built-in distribution. There's a guy named Scott Galloway uh, who's kind of this talking head but he also he's pretty good on brand not so mm-hmm. great on crypto but he's he's really good on brand mm-hmm. and you know he he talks about basically every all the great products out there they end up applying they they tap into this very primal human desire so it could be like sexual fitness it could be survival and security whatever and pfps kind of have that it's a flex right like right. some people just don't get that and some people I have say, a yeah, Fucking crypto punk right here. There you go, baby. There you go. Yeah. I've been saying for months that I'm gonna get uh get art here and hang it up, but I haven't haven't done it yet. But every time I go over to your place, I'm like, yeah, I actually gotta do this. But yeah, I think it's um I think it's a I mean it definitely taps into that. The other thing they have really native built-in distribution, like better right. native virality than maybe any other product that exists. 
And here's an interesting thing that started to happen as well is, have you been noticing that these PFP collections like Bad Kids or Pudgies are getting uh, airdrops? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, Pudgies yeah. would lo- love to tell you all about the airdrops that they're getting. But that can't, that can't be, there's limited ammo there, right? So l- let me describe, I mean, so here's why it makes sense from the perspective of protocol that's airdropping. Imagine mm-hmm. you are about to launch your protocol. And what you want to do is you, you might have multiple different objectives, right? Like Starkler is pretty interesting. They wanted to do, they want to bring, they want to reward their early users. They want to attract new users. They want to reward and continue to incentivize the developer community. They want to uh, transition some people who are uh, staking on ETH to be like restaked operators on Eigenlayer. So they have all these objectives. The problem is uh, siblers, right? Like that's the right. big thing. You don't want just these industrial airdrop farmers to come in and take everything. So NFTs communities are this really interesting intersection of both those things where they're sibled, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not going to be dumping that to airdrop farmers and they're wealthy new community members, right? Like if you have a, a, the floor of pudgies are like 50,000 bucks. So if you're dropping to the pudgy community, you know, if you get even a really low conversion rate, that's probably worth it. You know, you probably got acquired some really high value customers. So I feel like we're a couple months out from all these threads being like, I paid for my pudgy with XYZ airdrop airdrops. and yeah, so I could see that being a huge, and there's going to be a million airdrops this year as well. So yeah, there are going to be a million airdrops. It's actually kind of nuts. Um, but okay, but Pudgy's got like two airdrops though. Like I don't know if we have enough data to say that this is this is. I, maybe you're just saying is it does data doesn't matter. This is just what makes sense to you. This is what makes sense to me. I think yeah, but like Pudgy's are just so far away from just like Starknet. Yeah, I. So Starknet, Starknet didn't do this, but like Dimension, like the Dimension airdrop, Dimension, yeah. um, the Dimension airdrop got uh, targeted pudgies and bad kids and some of the other NFT questions. I've already, you, really did, did you yeah. know about Dimension before its airdrop? I had heard of it, but I, I couldn't have articulated what it did. Because there are these tokens that are getting airdropped and all of a sudden these protocols are like between like two and ten billion dollars that I've yeah, David, never heard of before. Yeah, I'm on this page with you, dude. If you have a logical explanation for why Dimension is trading where it's trading, I would I, I have all ears. No clue, dude. It's yeah. just like I I lost my like well, I need to go find it. It's somewhere. I sent it to an address. I need to go find which address, but I haven't been able to actually like sell my DYM. And I, that's what I've heard is like people just like can't figure out how to actually sell the tokens. Uh, but it's not the only one, right? Like Altlayer also dropped into some sort of insane valuation. And I don't think anyone heard of it uh like a month prior. Yeah. I mean, even the F the FDV of Starknet is I mean, Starknet's obviously a, a super credible uh you know very attractive project but like that's super high after i mean these are right. some of these are great projects but even right. like Gito and jupiter like great projects mm-hmm. you know but they're launch, launching a multi-billion dollar fdvs is like crazy and i know people say that at this point fdv is a meme in the cycle and then people don't care until they do but i think people watch fdvs like, I, I, look at FDV. I look at fdv exclusively and I, sometimes I feel like an asshole that. for doing that because everyone Me says too. that fdd is a meme but i'm like what is the most rational number that exists yeah. Well, here's the other, I mean, the other I'd thing. Love to, I'd love to get happening. Vance's take on that. Can you, next time you have a podcast with Vance, can you ask him about that? Yeah, actually in one of the early bell curve episodes, he was like, wait, what do you guys look at market cap or FDV? And we paused and he was like, please, for the love of God, there's a right answer here. So I know he's on the FDV train, but uh-huh. uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really have a great explanation for it other than just like risk. There's just the, the market is just kind of risk on again. Right. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. that's kind of like, yeah, people just are not hitting the sell button. 
people are hitting no. the buy button. Yeah. No. And and to be fair, I mean, maybe to assign like some amount of rational thinking to this, like, are you selling anything right now? No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So like the the two airdrops that I got, which I'm big fans of, Alt Layer and Dimension, <laughs> both of them, I'm like, well, if I keep them, it might qualify me for a future airdrop if I don't sell. <laughs> well, so I I'll, so I'll sell. Mentality. Market, David. Yeah, uh, that's pro- you probably just answered that question. So, yeah, and, and, and just on the margin, people are like, well, you know, I feel like everyone is in the same. You know, we're crypto. What the, the total market cap right now is at like two trillion, right? Yep. Bitcoin is, yep. you know, twenty twenty five percent off its all time highs. I think mm-hmm. most people have the same framework that we're gonna slowly grind up from here, and then it really gets on. You know, the party really starts when we cross the all-time high. So right. I guess to answer my own question, why are you selling anything at the current yeah. moment? You probably you probably don't. And and I everyone has these stories too, right? Of like an airdrop that they flipped and they you know, they tweet out, Oh, I would have had one and a half million dollars. So that's definitely the mindset that I have. I'm just holding on to everything for the most part right now. So Dude, the the I think everyone is trying to be Celestia right now ever like there are uh, future projects that are going to airdrop their tokens and they're like how do we airdrop our tokens at a low valuation so that it can pump for a long time afterwards like how do we do that i'm like you guys can't force the market to do anything but like the fact that celestia dropped and it just rocketed and did a 10x to airdrop holders kicking off like the bull market like blowing up the whole like modular money meme into like this new mind share that everyone has and then actually gaining adoption by some of the Ethereum rollups. Uh, and it, it was airdropped to a bunch of like random people and then it pumped 10 X. That's like the bar that everyone will remember that, that they're like that this airdrop could be that this airdrop could be that. And like for yeah. the next year of airdrops, we're all going to hold our airdrops cause it could do a Celestia. But even when Celestia launched, I don't remember thinking that was particularly cheap. You know, like it was right. launched at a right. two billion dollar FTV. I was like, oh, it's like a lot. I, you know, but it just ripped, it and just it was fu- did not yeah. stop. Yeah, I mean, for, Celestia is a phenomenal project, and they, they deserve sure. it. But like that, that initial price action was, I'm sure, massive for the general psychology of the product. Right. So, yeah. Right. Um, but, but, you know, Celestia is also kind of like, uh, Celestia is also, you know, going back to this convergence thing, you know, Bitcoin, bulletin board where you can put like right. really small blocks, doesn't even support smart contracts. That's where Ethereum headed. That's what Celestia is doing as well. Celestia is actually really similar to Bitcoin in its construction because it also, you can't, it doesn't support smart contracts at the, right. you know, at their layer. So yeah, in, in a lot of ways, like that's also that's a super interesting ecosystem, I would say as well. Yeah, I, I have not yet been able to like categorize Celestia very well in my brain, like in the big blocker category, but not in not no virtual machine, so no settlement. I don't know how to think about Celestia. Yeah. So the way that I think about Celestia is they have found a way to obviate a lot of the negative trade offs of what was this huge argument back in the day of the block science war. Mm-hmm. And there were two very different camps of thinking about blockchains, which is one, you know, you want to keep the, ironically, actually, the small block camp is not the way that Satoshi thought about it. I know it's gotten a rebrand, but like at the original vision of the big in the Bitcoin white paper is digital peer to peer cash, which required scaling hardware. Um, and so eventually there, you know, you came to this disagreement about like, how big do we make the blocks? The miners wanted bigger blocks. Uh, the core devs did not want as big of blocks. And ultimately, Bitcoin, I think, made the right decision and went the the small block route. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of that 
uh, design inspiration has found its way into Ethereum, uh, the Ethereum way of thinking as well as just the next large successful blockchain post post Bitcoin. And I think Solana and Celestia I would put in this camp of you know the Solana approach is that we're going to have larger validators now. We're going to do con- they don't even really have a concept of block building. It's very, it's continuous building, right. but it's basically yeah. like allow for larger validators now. Let uh, you know let uh, as what's that law where um, Moore's law Hardwick. Moore's law uh, mm-hmm. to catch up on costs and eventually we'll be able to decentralize that way. And Celestia has a different approach where they say we're okay with big blocks. We actually are going to have fewer validators that are bigger and more expensive, still permissionless, but there's a barrier to entry. But what we have that the the Bitcoiners didn't have at that other time is these things called light nodes and this technology called data availability sampling. So what the light nodes do is they basically can call a check on the few chunkier nodes that are producing these very big, very cheap blocks uh, to keep them honest, you know, to to talk about it at a very high level. So it's kind of a cool best of both worlds type thing. Um, and that's that's the that's the architecture. Right. And that, that go back so it goes back to what you're saying about Vitalik's vision of just like big big blocks being checked by small blocks, basically. Big block philosophy yeah. being checked by small block philosophy. Exactly. Yeah. Um and I do think, uh, you know, honestly, Polygon has done a really good job of this. I, I'm not actually a huge fan of the ag layer branding, but I think they've kind of nailed it with that design. Yeah, well. I actually have not looked into that. I think we, we might have a show scheduled or something like this. Uh, what What is the ag Brendan layer? Brendan is the, is the guy. Yeah. I, basically, the idea, like my my brain breaks around ZK proofs. Like that right. moon math is just beyond yes. a, a yeah. left side of the bell curve guy like me. But basically, the idea is that all right, if you, uh, you know, take take the example that you want to do things on, like you are on chain X and you want to do things on chain Y, and maybe that's a swap or something mm-hmm. like that, um, that requires multiple different legs to, to ultimately end up getting completed. You need proof. Somehow you on chain X need proof that this thing happened on chain right. Y. So the, that's what these execution proofs are. Uh, they get posted to the central layer. So everyone knows that, um, you that everyone has done the action that they said that they were going to do. The big question about ZK proofs and these ag layers in general is what is the setup of the proving? Is it decentralized? What is the cost? What is the latency? Because obviously, if you can only make send one of these proofs, you know, once a year, then that's not useful to anyone. You know, right, but right. if you could do it every one or two seconds, which is where Polygon wants to get, pretty freaking useful, actually. Is it so. just a settlement layer that's on top of Ethereum but below the layer twos? I think it, I would think of it almost as kind of next to the layer twos. It, it basically just allows you to take, there are all these different execution environments which are super different from one another, right? right? And originally, like we kind of thought it would be really nice if these execution environments all could like directly pipe into each other and talk to each other. But now what the, the ag layer concept sort of asks is, I'm just going to let you do things the way that you would like to do them in your layer. I'm going to do them the way that I would like to do them in my layer. I'm going to create a proof that the outcome the important outcome here, don't really care how you did it, but the outcome here right. that you said that you were going to do is is right, and that all goes to this common layer. So I don't know if it's on top of or below or next to, but like right. it's it's complementary, I think, to the sure. to the rollups. Yeah, there's there's a lot of these uh, composability technologies as being uh, innovated on in the Ethereum landscape, and some of them overlap, some of them don't overlap, some of them are solving their own problems in different ways, uh, and there's like. Eight of them, eight eight different categories of like ways of solving Ethereum composability, and they're all happening in parallel. Uh, and 
coordination between because like in order to actually get perfect composability it's going to need to take like the best of all of these things and put it into one like more seamless solution which sounds like a massive coordination lift but uh the only like thought that i have about ethereum composability is that it dies it dies a thousand cuts like there's no one gold and silver bullet it just dies in a bunch of small different ways or what if the best solution just wins or what yeah. one sol- but yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't seen one solution actually be able to encompass all types of composability issues. Is I, I yeah. haven't seen that. Well, all right. Here's the maybe to move into like some spicier waters here. But right, sure. the, I think the challenge with the challenge with the ETH rollup landscape as it exists today is actually that the rollups don't have as much of an incentive to uh, be composable as you might think. Right. I, yes. I think everyone would say that they want to, but really the economic incentive is to keep people. They want to own. in spirit, but not in their bags. Yeah, they want everyone else to do the thing that I'm doing. Like, we yeah, should yeah. all interoperate, right? I've got these great standards. Yeah. Take my standards. Yeah, Polygon, come be an OP stack chain. <laughs> yeah, come on, come on. I've been, I've been working so hard for this, you know? <laughs> Just come and do my thing. Um, but I think they'll get, but so that, I think that's the challenge is, I think what you're uh, alluding to, David, is, it's not necessarily a technical challenge. There are probably multiple different technological like tech solutions that could work, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a social, it's a social challenge. And I, I ultimately think the market is going to end up proving out. Like here's a question that I've been asking myself. So Ethereum, what it's trying to do as a, as a protocol is to export its currency. The, the way where it's exporting itself is its roll up environment. How is where is the ether going to go? Is it going to go evenly distributed to every rollup? Do mm-hmm. Optimism and Arbitrum end up taking the lion's share of that ETH? Do uh, do weird schemes like Blast end up taking a shit ton of ETH because they're offering yield when no one else is? How do you think? Like, I'm curious. There's a ton of ETH out there. How do you think when it gets pushed up to these rollups? Like, how's it going to shake out? Like, where are the final? Uh sinks for ETH in the grand scheme of yeah. things. Yeah. Hmm. And so we're not talking about eigenlayer because that's still on the layer one. Yeah. Well, that'll yeah. be another sink too, I think. Are, are you asking me like uh, pick your chains? Like is it optimism is Arbitrum or are you kind of Yeah, like we don't have to... It? Basically where I'm getting is like I what I would guess is there's this like power law where the, the bigger... Like let's just say there's a couple different sinks for ETH, mm-hmm. right? There's like the roll-up sink, which is... Um, probably where most of the ETH, I would say, is going. Then right. there's probably this sort of weird sink for people that want to wrap their ETH and use it on Solana, which I guess is like a really small market. And then there's this kind of restaked uh, sink where you know you stake it in uh, in Lido or something like that, and then you go into this crazy liquid restaking ecosystem and do a bunch of yield-type activities. But I think people that want to use ETH the way that you and I have thought about using ETH in the past, mm-hmm. they want to do stuff like buy NFTs or trade or whatever. Right. I think they'll end up on these rollups, and I'm guessing a, a huge amount of ETH is going to migrate up there. It, it already is. Uh, so, is it going to evenly distribute, like you know, <clears throat> two ETH for Arbitrum, two ETH for Optimism, one ETH for Scroll, or is it going to like accelerate and more ETH is going to pour into the rollup that already has the advantage? If you know, what it I mean. really depends on the categories of composability solutions that we come up with. Uh, because like if there is, uh, so like sl- say there's like a sliding scale of composability across rollups and like the, on the zero side, we just can't figure it out. Like bridging takes, you know, 
you know, minutes and days. There's like, you know, asynchronous Uniswap pools that take forever to settle. There's like high arbitrage between these things. Composability sliders at zero versus composability sliders all the way at 100. And there's like perfect synchronous universal composability. It's one single state, even though there's many different chains. Like cross-chain contract calls are perfectly seamless and they never fail. And so like, we're we're at we started at zero. We're already marching somewhere further away from zero. So we're already off of zero in composability. Maybe we're at five, ten, fifteen, something. Um, still pretty low. And the, really, the question is: is like how far down the slider of perfect synchronous composability can we get? And can we get to a hundred? And if we can get to a hundred, then there is no sync. There is no chain that dominates all of the DeFi. There's no like DeFi chain. If if we stayed closer towards zero, my answer would be like the DeFi chain. All of the liquidity, all of the capital would aggregate into the, the DeFi chain. And then you would have like systems like StarkNet, which would be like the fully on-chain gaming chain that doesn't really need that much ETH. It just needs payments, right? Uh, and then there would be like the Zora. It doesn't need that much ETH. It just needs payments, right? And so like there would be like the one single DeFi chain and then the 10,000 payments chains. And the payment chains would be for different purposes like gaming or collecting or whatever um, but then as we start to slide uh, on down the scale like if we get past on the composability scale to the point where like uni chain is its own chain and not a deployment on arbitrum and optimism and polygon and whatever and if we get that far and like trading on uniswap is a contract call to uni chain and that can happen in settlement across rollups then all of a sudden capital will be much more diffuse across the rollups uh, because then you'll have Unichain, maybe you'll have Compound Chain, then you'll have like the general purpose chains like Arbitrum and Optimism attracting like whatever activity they're going to attract. Uh, and then there's going to be a lot more of like application specific rollups doing whatever the hell they want. And then it'll be a lot more diffuse. So my, my answer is like it really depends on that slider when where we end up. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I think that composability stuff is going to take a while. So I would bet on a high. Yeah, it's going to take a while. So I feel like there's a path dependence thing here where it's a little bit of a race. Like if I was sitting in the if I was sitting in the driver's seat of one of these big frameworks, I'd be like, how can I get as much ETH onto my platform as I possibly can right now? Because I feel like that's going to be a colossal moat. So is that what you think Blast explicitly what Blast was doing? Yeah, yeah, I do. They, um, there, they, there's they, a, they thought in your terms and they're like, we're just going to do whatever we can to get as much ETH as possible because the door is shutting. And so we're going to play whatever game possible to make that happen. I am. I, I look, I don't know Pac-Man. Uh, I, I actually yeah. like, I, I like the way he thinks um, a lot. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure if I'm a big fan of blast yet, but here's my, here's the, here's the logical series of events as I saw it. He launches blur, right? It's right. NFT trading. Very, very successful in taking market share from, OpenSea, just like every other exchange operator that's ever operated on Ethereum says these gas gas fees suck. Oh, this is great. We have these new uh, things called layer twos, which have cheap gas fees, man. um, Why would I take this app where I have a ton of product market fit on and go launch it on someone else's L2? Uh, I'm going to create my own L2. Here's the problem, though. I don't I'm going to launch this L2 and there's going to be no liquidity. How can I get the liquidity on? Oh, I know. I'll allow people, I'll do it with yield. You know, I'll allow people to earn yield. And I, I think that was the series of events that, uh, if I had to guess, yeah. 
I've, I've never understood the blast yield incentive because I have ETH in Aave on Optimism, except in like, and then I have like stables borrowed against it and it's staked ETH. It's Lido staked ETH. So I'm getting the same ETH on Optimism that someone else is on blast. So what's the fucking deal? Well, I probably a lot of these people are airdrop farming is right now, right? right. That's what I would guess. Uh, yeah. Right. So right. they're probably airdrop farming and it's kind of this idea, like, I, I really think crypto people love yield. TradFi people love yield. I had a yeah, conversation yeah. With, a, with someone who works at a big, very crypto native, but very TradFi type trading desk. And they were describing mm-hmm. to me, so most of the liquidity still exists in Bitcoin and ETH around trading pairs, right? So if you want to trade in and out of something, the, the highest likelihood is that you're going to have the most liquidity on an ETH or Bitcoin cross. It's like 70%. Uh, but what they don't like doing is just holding... ETH or Bitcoin on their balance sheet because it doesn't earn any yield. So now what they have is they're swapping out their non-yield earning stables for, uh, there's a new compliant yield earning stable uh, that Hashnode just launched this week, and they're going to hold Steeth. And when they want to make a trade, they move from Steeth into ETH back into (laughs) the yield bearing thing. And they're trying to literally, David, reduce the amount of time that they're in non-yield bearing stuff. So... This is this is the yield thing is not a story that's going away. And I mean, it is kind of nice, right? Like I could just I don't even have to think about it on this L2. Just whenever I'm in ETH, I'm just earning yield on it. That's kind of nice. Yeah. And it it solves a problem that's a different problem, which is like when I go on to Optimism or Arbitrum or like I look at my wallet and I'm like ETH, but like the Optimism logo and then ETH, but the Arbitrum logo. Mm-hmm. And like so so like what you, if you there can't be like Lido ETH on uh, Blast. It just has to be blast ETH and they have to homogenize all ETH that goes onto their layer two. Like it can't have any sort of like derivative in front of it because it all needs to be blast ETH. Um, yeah. But maybe, maybe I guess that's table stakes for all layer twos though. It's table stakes for all layer twos. I actually yeah. think you just hit on a super important point. This is not my observation. This was John Tribe's observation, which I'll give him the credit for the initial observation and then I want to abstain from any incorrect conclusions that I draw from it. But basically, <laughs> uh, basically protective from all the uh wrong stuff that i say after this but the idea like every single eth uh, instance that exists off of main chain is a wrapped version of that eth right. like it's right. op eth it's rb yeah. eth etc so right. once you've made that mental leap why wouldn't you just hold the yield bearing version of that wrapped token? yeah i i, I agree oh. with that and I, that's yeah. why i have staked i have lido staked eth on optimism inside ave and so i have Ave wrapped staked ETH, Optimism wrapped, wrapped Ave staked ETH. That's the derivative yeah. set that I have. That just feels a little bit more complicated than just as soon as I as soon as I get up there, I'm immediately earning yield, and it just feels like I don't even know. I I think we'll see. I I just I don't know, but it's it was a novel strategy that other protocols weren't doing at the time that clearly allowed him to attract an enormous amount of liquidity um it'll probably allow him to attract a lot of activity up to that roll-up and it'll be a good home for blur which is where I, i'm assuming that they're going to migrate i'm i'm just skeptical as to like how because a ton of eth went into blast and blast had the we have native eth uh, yielding eth on our our layer two which doesn't exist uh and then also the the, the point farms right also the token airdrops and like everyone is describing a ton of legitimacy to like Blast's new innovative strategy of native yield. 
but really, and, but really it was legitimized by the point farming and maybe it was actually not that big of a deal. We were just thinking it's a big deal because of all the eat that it got from the point farming. Like I'm worried that we're um, like running into that trap. David, let me ask you a question. Uh, all of this interest in Eigenlayer, how much of it do you think is the demand is coming from yield from ABSs <laughs> versus farming Eigenlayer points? Okay, Eigenlayer had hype before the point farm. I agree. I agree. But 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 then it, then think, the point farm amplifies. I do think the, I think a lot of people are in there for the points. So yeah, and that's the hope of this whole thing, right? It's like you the value proposition to someone that is. YOLOing into Eigenlayer because, look, Eigenlayer the team is phenomenal, but there is eventually going to be slashing risks. There is smart contract risk. You know, mm-hmm. the the way that they solve this cold start problem with this cool idea, but if I'm not getting this extra thing, I don't want to risk my funds, is, is points and rewards and all that stuff. That's how our system works. And some brave souls will try it, some will be rewarded, and some are going to get in trouble for, for taking too much risk. Uh, but the eigenlayer part of the ecosystem, you know, you and I talk about this a lot. It's definitely, I'm like simultaneously the most concerned about it, but I'm the most interested in it and excited about it at the same time. I think it is where a lot of the action is going to happen this cycle. Yeah, I, I, I judge um, ecosystems by their ability to nerd snipe people into crypto. So like Bitcoin won because it nerd sniped like the digital gold bugs and like gave them a, a banner to like rally under. Uh, and then Ethereum nerd sniped a certain set of people uh, and that was sufficiently large to create the Ethereum ecosystem. Solana nerd sniped a bunch of other people that Bitcoin and Ethereum did not nerd snipe. Um, and I'm I'm watching Eigenlayer nerd snipe people that no nothing else in crypto has ever nerd sniped people before. Both people in like on Wall Street and Silicon Valley, like the SaaS SaaS companies, can like rally behind Eigenlayer. Don't care about Bitcoin. Don't care about Ethereum. Don't care about Solana. But just like trust as this like module that they can like incorporate into their product offering. Like that makes sense. And like Wall Street is also like totally able to wrap their heads around Eigenlayer. So like Eigenlayer is in the middle of this like very slow motion nerd snipe. And I'm just like kind of fascinated to see what kind of what types of people it brings into the fold. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that too. I, I want one uh, maybe dimension that I would add to what's driving a lot of the Eigenlayer buzz and this flywheel that's kicking in for them is as much as it is an economic security play where if you're either a cosmos chain or an avs and you do not want to pay an enormous amount of emissions to convince people to stake uh, your chain like it makes a ton of sense from the that's the demand side of their marketplace but the other reason why you might want to launch as an eigenlayer avs is kind of a growth story as well, you know, in the same way that remember a little while ago it was like all these chains were moving to Ethereum rollups because mm-hmm. the idea was like, hey, let me plug into this massive ecosystem in it. I think that was, that was pretty good play for a lot of those, a lot of those, uh, you know, L ones that were kind of, you know, wasting away into obscurity. But now I get to plug into this ecosystem. I get to put myself in this narrative. There's a bunch of ETH that wants to move up into rollups. Like it was really good for a bunch of those chains, and I think. There are going to be a lot of chains like that is another element to the eigenlayer thing that people are sort of missing, which is like I could be this weird, um, you know, AVS that does this middleware thing that no one really cares about. Or I can be the next eigenlayer chain, baby. And uh, I could be a part of this point, uh, you know, take a bunch of the, the, the you know, there's eight billion dollars of, of capital, ETH capital that wants to find its way into these chains. So mm-hmm. I think it's a growth story as well as a security story. Interesting. Uh, a growth story, right? Is that that's what I mean? Yeah, I, th- I think okay. that's the meta that that okay. a lot of these AVSs are uh, that that these 
AVSs are playing. It's like I could either launch this weird, obscure middleware thing that no one's going to mm-hmm. care about, or I can catapult myself into this narrative spotlight and $7 billion worth of each ETH, which is looking for a home in various AVSs of which I could right. be one. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, that's kind of like the bullish uh, element of like shared security is that it actually costs very little to get a lot of security. Right. Yeah. And there's like um, economies of scale here. The more AVSs that are providing like some minor amount of yield to the entire system, more like a leveraged amount of capital comes into that because of how free that yield is. It's free yeah. yield, free yield, baby. It is real. Yeah. You're just opting in to this incremental additional yield, which is feels like a win win. Right. Yeah. And so is what you're saying is like there's like a, just a lot of pent up potential energy here between like the massive amount of ETH that's in Eigenlayer that has nowhere to go except for these LRT projects who are also filling to the brim with ETH right now. Uh, and then like all, all these AVSs are like there's no supply side. There's demand for me and there's like zero AVSs and there's about to be like eight and then maybe in a year there'll be like 16 or something and so like you're saying like well as an avs it's going to be so easy to attract a ton of capital is that what you're saying attractive ton of capital to you know the the hope is that some of those people end up being uh, they're trying to acquire some of the the users from the people who have this eth and they're also trying to put themselves in this kind of sexy spotlight and narrative, you know, I think that's, I think that's all a big part of it, but there's also, there, there's a very real reason why this exists and it's super cool. And I, the way that I view the LRTs and even projects like ethos is there, there are a lot of, uh, it's very difficult right now for projects to actually connect with Eigenlayer directly. So what the LRTs basically are, are allowing, it's like adding modularity and flexibility in terms of how these AVSs end up procuring that security capital and spend um so but let, like we're, we're talking about a lot of high-minded stuff here david let me let me take us out of the weeds for a second i, I want to get your i want to get Wait, your take on can yeah. i can i actually share something josh yeah, I'm, yeah. Gonna share my, I'm gonna share my screen are you ready for me to share my screen uh josh is the operator bankless nation all right all right all right i'm gonna share my screen in a second uh here we go share screen here we go. Ready for this, Mike? I'm ready. Uh, Yuga Labs just ac- acquired Proof. Wow. Oh, no way. I did, I did not see that coming. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this give is in the, the YouTube you, comments. Can you give us the background of that? I, I'm actually not as familiar with Proof. That's Kevin Rose's. That's uh, Kevin Rose's. Right? It's the Moonbirds thing, the Proof Collective. Uh, and so, yeah, apparently Yuga Labs just uh, acquired all of them. So I guess, yeah, the Moonbirds collection is now part of Yuga Labs, who owns Bored Apes, Mutant Apes, CryptoPunks, uh, um, MeBits, all of these. Uh, all right, cool. Do you think, Do you think uh, without looking or cheating, do you think Moonbirds goes up or down? The price of Moonbirds goes uh, up or down? Uh, definitely up, definitely up. A, a yeah. it's a bull market. B, uh, there's, it can't go down anymore. <laughs> 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 Yeah, God, you're right. You're right. Um, All right, what were you going to bring up? Unless you want to keep going with that. No, no, no. Where do you want to go? I want to just get your thought on, it's it's such a cliche question, but just like where are we in this cycle here? Your sort of mental framework for it. Like, are you, you know, do you wake up a lot of mornings feeling particularly 
euphoric and bold up and excited? Um, like, where do you, you know, maybe especially if you like haven't been in the space for a particularly long time and this is your first time going through one of these cycles, you're starting to get jazzed up, price Bitcoin's right. above 50K again. Like, how are you, how are you feeling? I think we are further along in this bull market than what the typical uh, newer entrants will give credit for. Um, yeah. uh, I think I w- was reflecting upon like my um, experience last bull market and like last bull market, like I thought I came in with a reference like that it started in like January of 2021 um, when an ether like pumped and hit all- new all time highs or it hit like 11,000, right? Or 1100. Um after being at 100 for like a year, 100 to 300. So it did like a three to four X. Um, like all my Ethereum friends were like over the moon. Like we're fine. Like we're finally getting out from under the shadows of Bitcoiners. Uh, and then like, and then NFT mania hadn't actually started yet, but it started very quickly after that. Um, and that's it, that bull market. I was like, okay, that's when the bull market started. It was like January, February of 2021. Uh, so we got like a good, like 18 months, two years left in this baby. Uh, when we actually only had like 10 months <laughs> because yeah. like I wasn't accounting for, you know, DeFi summer when like ETH price action stayed below 300, like people were making a ton of life changing wealth, but you wouldn't have really called it a bull market. Like I, there was still during DeFi summer, there was like, is this, this isn't product market fit. Like this is not what people, people don't want to gamble on food tokens. Like this isn't mainstream. This isn't causing Bitcoin to go up. This isn't causing ETH price to go up. This is just a bunch of like long tail, like risk on assets to turn into like yield farms. That's not a bull market. And so I never accounted for, uh, I never added that onto my bull market time. Uh, But that was a mistake because it totally was the bull market. Like people were making a ton of money. And I learned this from Chris Berniski is like, it's just like, it really depends on how much net paper gains the entire industry has. And that will determine whether the bull market ends or not. Uh, And so like paper gains have started. People's like paper people like you're we were just talking about like people are receiving billion dollar airdrops, not selling them. Uh, like so, soul bros are like massively up, haven't sold definitely, probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like you know, NFTs are, are rising. Like everyone's sitting on like a good healthy stack of paper gains right now, and no one's taking anything off the table because like retail's not in yet. And then retail's going to come in, and then like we're gonna our paper gains are going to be massive, and that's really when the clock starts ticking. But like I'm saying, we're like we're like approaching halfway through the bull market, which I think is a lot further along than most people think. Yeah. I was going to say about probably time-wise about, yeah, halfway through, I was going to say fourth inning, but I think fourth inning inning is almost halfway through. Yeah. Because you know, the the real fourth, you know, we got the fourth, we're in the middle of the fourth. Yeah. You know, it's just funny because I, my experience was exactly yours. I have this really vivid memory of, because COVID happened. That was the big thing that happened last time. Right. So it actually, at the end of, tw- if you go back and look at the price action of 2019, you'd be, it looks good. It's <laughs> it looks up good only. On paper. It's up, it's only. up only. It's but whole year. not how it felt during it's that period of time. not how it felt. Not until oh the very god. end. Yeah, not until the very end. And But then COVID happened and you were like, oh my god, is this industry. I mean, Bitcoin went down to 4,000 and then it started to creep up. And I remember I didn't even really start paying attention to it until it, went at, until it was at like 13 or 14. It was like, whoa, I have not seen Bitcoin at 14. Right. in a long time right and then i sort of started to watch it heat up and go and go and i really only was like yes it is the bull market after it cleared all-time highs right. so that's exactly my framework now because i mean it was interesting like coinbase earnings came out yesterday and we don't need to go into the weeds of it but you saw the very beginnings of 
retail was back more than institutional. Their retail volume was up more than the institutional. Mm. Uh, it really, it's not even going to show up in their numbers. It's where does Coinbase, where is Coinbase on the the app store? And right. that has started to jump up. And yeah, it's like we're starting to see the very early signs. But you know what's something that's kind of, I mean, I'd love to get your perspective on this from your bankless venture seat. But one thing that hasn't really started to happen yet is like funds are raising a bunch. Um, I've heard it's actually still kind of tough sledding out there for uh, the fundraising environment, which is surprising mm. to me. Because yeah, what do you, what do you, is that accurate, inaccurate? Because um, that another, that's another big marker of when these funds start to get raised. Funds are deploying bigly. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, valuations of startups have crept up a pretty meaningful amount, but nothing over the top, nothing like sloshy. Um, yeah. uh, I haven't heard of funds raising, but I'm also just not tapped into that, that world. Cause like we're done raising. So we're not, we're not doing that. Uh, we were like one of the only funds to raise in, uh, what year was that? 2022, 2023. Yeah, um, you guys crushed but, it. Yeah. Like we were the only ones who could really like get away with it. Um, uh, I haven't heard of funds raising, um, so no. But I, I wouldn't be the one because, like, I'm not paying attention to funds. Like, I'm I'm paying mm-hmm. attention to portfolio companies, and funds are definitely deploying right now. Like, cash yeah. is being spit out, and there's a lot of startup interest. There's a lot of like people who are actually building really cool shit, really novel shit. Um, yeah. And so I would definitely call it a pretty like exciting market. Nothing is too hot. It's definitely a founders market, not a VCs market. The pendulum has shifted to the founder now mm-hmm. um whereas like it, maybe a year ago it was definitely still on the fee side of things um mm-hmm. but yeah that's that's kind of my take so you don't think the the private markets and public like public market just being liquid tokens i guess in crypto you think mm-hmm. they're still walking relatively similarly or is one crept up in front of the other i i, th- I think so I, i've heard other people i think i've heard chris berniski say that like private markets are starting to get like kind of crazy and this, i i've i've seen i know i see what he's talking about but i don't wouldn't call it crazy chris definitely knows more than me um uh but like everything seems okay to me like uh i'm i'm the bull of bankless ventures uh <laughs> ryan's the the breaks and bends like the mm-hmm. rationalist um but like at some point like i'm just like guys like these like 50 to 80 million dollar seed rounds are have become the norm like that is mm. like and there it's a hot market and this is like and they're, they're like oh that's really expensive i'm like yeah so was all the other ones like this is just what it is um yeah there i i've uh, heard you know one way of thinking about it is you're uh you're a price taker not a make like you just got to find yeah. the the best prices that exist out into the market will tell you what the valuation is and you just mm. got to decide whether or not you want to take it but uh, it, you guys raised at a really opportune time because it's going to become like we've talked about this before, but there's probably a window where, especially for like most people, your first and even second cycle, you don't make any money because right. you wait until the, the new all time high. You have way less time than you think. You know, right. you go small in the beginning, but then the euphoria kicks in and you mm-hmm. invest most of your money at the top where you shouldn't. And right. there probably is some period of time to just sit on your hands. Totally. Um, I don't know when that well, is. So like but. The, the, I think FTX actually painted an exemplar model of how everyone fails in a bull market, which is they started <laughs> off conservative. They started doing like arbitrage, like free arbitrage trades between Bitcoin and stable coins. And then over the bull market, they started to become more and more risk on with their trading strategies to the point where they ended, where they were like, how can we take the most amount of leverage? Three Earths Capital also did this. 
There were also like a very safe GBTC premium trade. And like even before that, I can't remember what the trade was, but it's even safer. It was like, like risk off trading during the bear market. And then as the bull market continued, it was like, okay, we, we are down to take price exposure rather than just like time it, like settlement uh, risk, right? We'll actually take, we'll take upside now. And then it was like, yeah. okay, we'll take leverage now. Oh, we'll take even more leverage now. And so like they were, every, everyone who failed was taking leverage at the top. Whereas like you should be taking leverage at the bottom at the and bottom. then clear it out before the top and then sell at the top. That's what everyone ought to be doing, but everyone does the opposite. Everyone just goes like more and more exposure as the markets go up in price. I know. And I mean, the other thing too, a couple other dynamics about this is there were a lot of funds last cycle, good funds that are still around that went from $10 million in AUM to a billion dollars in AUM. Mm -hmm. And your universe of investable assets or, or opportunities is so much smaller when you have that size. And you know, I, I, I watched this interview that the Three Arrows guys gave. They, uh, their defense on GBTC was that, oh, it was a really good trade, but you know we couldn't account for other people piling in. It's like, yeah, you actually could account for that, and you're supposed to. That's what you're supposed <laughs> to account for. That's why you're a professional money manager. Um, you, you know, and it, the GBTC thing was just such a hilarious, concentric hallucination because those close-end funds always trade at discount to nav. It should have been really obvious to this industry that I just did an interview with a guy who it was a huge part of the ETH part of that trade. Mm-hmm. And dude, it was just, I mean, it's literally as simple as, have you heard that quote? There's nothing so damaging to your health as hearing that your neighbor made money. <laughs> it's like, that's what it is. It's just a couple people made 15 or 16 X their, their, uh, what they put in and everyone just FOMO'd into that trade. So right. I'm sure the same thing is going to happen here at this time. I just, I just don't know what it is. Uh, everyone thinks it's going to be restaking, which makes me think it's not going to be restaking because everyone literally thinks that it's going to be. But I have, I have no idea. But I think there's a, like a lot of just like ancient wisdom that people in Wall Street know that like people in crypto definitely don't know. Uh, and just by in the fact that like sometimes we're in a bubble, and so are they, and our bubbles don't mix. Um, yeah. But it's not going to be me to bring that over here because I don't know it. <laughs> No, I don't know it either. Actually, you know, it's funny. You I mean, I feel like of that. all people, you do know it the most because you interview all the macro people. So a golden rule of this that I found interviewing macro people is that, you know how when you hear old macro people talk about crypto and you're just like, oh my God, that's the most cringe take ever. Right. Uh, you do not know what you're talking about. It goes the other way too. And when you hear crypto people talk about macro, you're like, oh God, you have no idea. (laughs) I'm not saying that I know enough to make great predictions about macro. I definitely don't. But I've done enough interviews where I can understand who knows what they're talking about and and who doesn't. And I mean, one thing that should have been extremely obvious to our industry that wasn't at the time is when they started raising rates, we all should have gotten extremely concerned and Right. I was not concerned. I had no frame of reference for this. I remember a Jim Bianco tweet saying like the times have changed. This is, I think maybe he used a term like paradigm shift. And I remember this yeah. tweet because it's burned into my brain. I'm like, uh, Jim Bianco, wh- what do you mean by that? I I don't get it. Like why, why is the a new phase of markets? I don't understand. And then like, 10 months later, I very much understood exactly what he meant. <laughs> I very much, and so did yeah. my portfolio. Like, oh, that's yeah. what you mean by that. The fastest rate hike in history. But this is also like why like the, the end of last bull market was also just like so weird. And maybe it wasn't, 
maybe it ended just the same way it always going to end because everyone was sitting on the mountain of paper gains that I was talking about. But also we had the fastest interest rate hike uh, that we've had in most market partisan, mar- par- uh, participants living memory. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's always going to be something. I, I sort of am in the camp that I'm in the Chris camp of everything that goes up must come down. Crypto goes up so fast that it must come down. Although I do think that there's good reason to believe that it's not different this time, but here's, here's a trend that's been happening uh, since for, for basically as long as crypto is in existence. Every bull cycle becomes slightly more muted. Like the yes. peak to trough returns of, say, Bitcoin as you go along has gone lower and lower. And the volatility of Bitcoin and Ethereum, the assets, go lower and lower. And the reason for that is really just a law of large numbers things. <laughs> if right. Bitcoin peaked to trough returned what it did in the 2011 cycle, it'd be the most valuable asset on earth 10 times over. So that just can't happen. But uh, but that's probably good. And then the other thing is these ETFs might have not changed the game, but they might have exacerbated that existing trend. Because think about who what was driving the price of Bitcoin in the 2020 to 2021 cycle. It was retail FOMOing their stimmies into Bitcoin, or it was smart money that was front running that retail. And so the next, the incremental dollar moving into Bitcoin was that hot money retail kind of just chasing this trend. But now with the Bitcoin ETFs and soon ETH ETFs, which I think everyone is generally sleeping on, is the next incremental dollar is not a hot money retail dollar. It is a slow passive dollar that is moving into Bitcoin now. And the people that trade the Bitcoin ETFs aren't like you and me. They don't see, oh, Bitcoin go up. I should probably buy more. They say, oh, Bitcoin's up 10% this week. It's probably going to mean revert. I'm going to sell. And that behavior over time is just going to level out mm-hmm. the, the price appreciation of, of Bitcoin. So, And I think it's going to happen with ETH. And that is the way that it should ultimately end up happening. I think that's a good thing. But I learned this from, uh, I can't remember, um, how, how press um, may, and maybe I need to get a second opinion on this, but like his big idea was that as soon as we have like sustainable, dependable flows, you get less volatility. I think that's yeah. just like true of any financial asset. If you have sustainable flows, like volatility goes down, um, which would be great for like the PR and optics. If Bitcoin can stop and Ether stop being so volatile, that, that'll be just, that's the maturing market. You, you said that these um, markets oh, dampen over time law of large numbers totally true like you can see that in the bitcoin and the eth volatility but also like looking at the market uh bull markets as like events events in crypto they can still be just like equally frothy as the last one because people will always go down the long tail and like there's no cap on how far down the long tail you can get like we were trading uh like jpegs of text at one point when they one of them like the floor got to 25 eth like that was yeah. some extreme frothy shit, and like sometimes, like I think it's kind of a little bit lost to his lost to history. But the ICO waterfall of just like the shitcoin waterfall that was in the 2017, like that was an insane time where like that was it, we, it was completely disconnected from reality, and it's kind of hard to express. It's it's even hard to remember how insane it was. I think Eric Voorhees had a tweet where he was talking about like, yeah, most people are just under-indexing about how insane the 2017 ICO mania was because it's just like lost to memory. Like it's it's like the memories are smoothed out. You can't really remember. It's hard to compare to the 2021 bull market. Um, but also I think like with Bitcoin and Ether are massively large numbers, 
those are just uh, hydraulic pumps down on the long tail and can make the long tail equally frothy no matter what kind of bull market it is. Uh, 100%. Th- those those arguments never held that much water with me. You, you hear people talk about, you know, we're never going to inject $7 trillion in the, into the market again. That was as crazy as it's ever going to get. I think 2017 was crazier than 2020 and 2021. I, I, I can't, I, without confidence, I think that's true. It felt crazier. It was, I remember looking at the price. I mean, the whole but that was also was our first like, bull market though. We had no frame. I know, but I think that it was just smaller and the prices, dude, I just remember these things would go up like, you know, 60, 70% a day. I, I guess maybe if I missed the whole NFT thing last time, which is maybe why I'm doubling down on it. <laughs> <somewhere this time. laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I just, I don't know, equally crazy. And there's going to be something equally crazy next time. But yeah, the long tail of cryptos is interesting as it's ever been, I think. And yeah. it's as dispersed as it's ever been. I can't keep up with all the different, you know, it's it's tough to keep up with everything that's going on. Um, but David, what are your thoughts on the the ETH ETF in general? Because I've been seeing, there's, there's an argument on Twitter that it's not going to be as big of a deal yeah, the people are saying that. Yeah, yeah, it's not as attractive to uh, institutional audience as as a Bitcoin ETF is. What do you think? Um, so I asked uh, Sandy from Franklin Templeton about like my my perspective on Ether is that like it's a more um, attractive asset for Wall Street. Surprise, the bankless guy thinks that Ether is a more attractive <laughs> asset um, just because it's like a tech platform. It's like a platform yeah. technology play. And that just resonates with them. Like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is digital gold. Okay, great. Uh, but Ethereum is tech with like apps and other chains built on top of it. And just as a form factor, it just is more understandable. It's got like a, you can do DCF analysis on on ETH. And I know like you want to throw your flag about how to value networks with a DCF analysis. But the point is you can, and they will accept it because that is what they understand. I think you're, I think you're probably right about that, David. Yeah. And so like, it doesn't, maybe I'm only like right a little bit on the fact that like, okay, Wall Street likes it a little bit more because of the tech play, the DCF play, but also ETH is one third of the size of Bitcoin. So liking it a little bit more for that reason, like you multiply that by three because just like it's, and and then also this is a, you know, from Vance Spencer's Twitter and it's like there's just much less float on ether on them on the markets because it's in layer twos it's in eigenlayer right it's like it's in compound it's in Aave uh, and so like a dollar means a lot more to the ether price than it does for the Bitcoin price I I think that's going to be the ultimate driving thing people the crypto natives will debate what is ETH story is it a money or a tech platform is it yield or is it ultrasound money you know what TradFi thinks they don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> they don't care. They just need a story. It's like Bitcoin. It's the next Bitcoin. It's smaller. Get right. in now. I and and I think another another thing that I don't believe that the Bitcoiners have always believed is it's only Bitcoin. It's only cent- central banks will only buy Bitcoin. And that's the safest one. I've just never bought into that idea. If anything, right. I think the most the the most realistic outcome is a basket. They they love yeah. baskets. They love baskets. Like they're already building baskets with bonds, equities, and Bitcoin in there. They're already building the baskets. There you go. I that's and so there'll be a crypto basket. And how many times have you heard, David, from maybe someone who's on the older side who I don't really understand this. I just want to give me broad exposure. Like I just want exposure. You know, they don't so I just I I've never bought into that idea that it's only going to be Bitcoin. I think if anything, I think if anything right now, the Bitcoin ETF has surprised people with the flows. Yes. I, and even the most bullish people. More and more. 
Yeah. And I don't know if we're in some kind of near peak. If you, if you do a run rate of 250 trading days, $500 million in flows a day, you wind up with a hundred billion. And I think that's, that just sounds wrong to me. That sounds too high, but it's looking like it's going to be a phenomenal success for Bitcoin, right? People are going to say ETH is going to do something similar to that. And Vance pointed this out on, on Bell Curve, but Bitcoin, ETH Bitcoin bottomed. The ETH BTC ratio yeah. bottomed like the day of the ETFs. Right. And it's probably, not to make a prediction, but it's probably, if it hasn't bottomed, it's probably it's probably a good bet probably that that's going to, yeah. 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 So that's, and also this is the time, Solana really messed everyone up. You and I have talked about this before. Yeah. The The typical thing that happens during this point of the cycle is everything sells off. Bitcoin sells off the least. ETH is the second least. And then everything else is this kind of bucket. And right. then what ends up happening is that's when Bitcoin dominance peaks. Then Bitcoin runs first. And then everything else follows. And people move out along the risk spectrum. Solana just messed everyone up because it was so there was that idiosyncratic FTX event. And right. so it got drastically underpriced. Then it got overpriced. But this is just really typical stuff for this part of the cycle. Bitcoin is running first. Mm-hmm. ETH is going to run again soon. So that's that's how I feel about it. And the people will say it's the ETF narrative, but it's probably just what was always going to happen, honestly. Yeah, that's probably right. That's probably right. Yeah, there's a lot of things like that. Like uh, the, the whole interest rates were hiking faster than all time, but the bull market was ending. Like it was, yeah. we, were, we were trading text JPEGs, like we're time now. <laughs> yeah. Like how much longer do you think we would have gone if, even if the interest rate thing hadn't happened? It couldn't, it couldn't have been that much longer. I agree. What yeah. goes up must eventually come down. So yeah. yeah. All right, man. Should we call it here? We can call it. Yeah. This was a lot of fun, buddy. I like these unscripted things. Yeah. I, I really like them. Raw, unvarnished David. I think people <laughs> want that David, don't they? <laughs> Am I? I, th- I don't think. I think Ryan's the more like varnished one. I'm always kind of like more unscripted and shooting from the hip. But maybe, that is, maybe that's my take. That is you true. In it, in the best way. In the best way. Um, All right, man. This is great. Thank you so much. Uh, what's your Twitter handle if people want to follow you? Uh, I am Mike Ippolito underscore. So you can follow cool. me there. We'll put cool. those in the show notes. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, partner. Cheers. Cheers. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRamps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xmantle. 
Arbitrum is the leading Ethereum scaling solution that is home to hundreds of decentralized applications. Arbitrum's technology allows you to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. Arbitrum has the leading DeFi ecosystem, strong infrastructure options, flourishing NFTs, and is quickly becoming the Web3 gaming hub. Explore the ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. Are you looking to permissionlessly launch your own Arbitrum Orbit chain? Arbitrum Orbit allows anyone to utilize Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own Orbit chain, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you're a developer, an enterprise, or a user, Arbitrum Orbit lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Visit Arbitrum.io and get your journey started in one of the largest Ethereum communities. Celo is the mobile-first, EVM-compatible, carbon-negative blockchain built for the real world. Driving real-world use cases like mobile payments and mobile DeFi, and with Opera Minipay as one of the fastest-growing Web3 wallets, Celo is seeing a meteoric rise with over 300 million transactions and 1.5 million monthly active addresses. And now, Celo is looking to come home to Ethereum as a layer two. Optimism, Polygon, Matter Labs, and Arbitrum have all thrown their hats in the ring for the Celo layer two to build upon their stacks. Why the competition? The Celo Layer 2 will bring huge advantages like a decentralized sequencer, off-chain data availability secured by Ethereum validators, and one-block finality. What does that all mean for you? With Celo Layer 2, gas fees will stay low, and you can even pay for gas natively using ERC-20 tokens, sending crypto to phone numbers across wallets using Social Connect. But Celo is a community-governed protocol. This means that Celo needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard. Join the conversation in the Celo forums, follow Celo on Twitter, and visit Celo.org to shape the future of Ethereum.